This afternoon, the recipe is short, sweet, and loud. I know that, and so we're going to get right to it. John the Baptist took his doubts to Jesus. I want to talk for just a few minutes about doubt and how it affects Christianity because it's something that all of us have to deal with at some point in time or another. My thesis statement probably I would give you is this. The Bible says we walk by faith. I would suggest that no one would want to meet me at the back door and say, no, 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 I would like to trade in that statement for I want to walk by doubt. I don't know anybody that wants to say that. But yet that's exactly what happens and that's how Satan operates many times to take our souls away from God. Well, John had a moment. There was a moment in John's ministry at the very beginning, of course, John was a cousin of Jesus. And so his mother, uh, his mother and Mary had an, an incredible moment whenever, whenever Mary came to visit John's mother. The Bible says that it was one of those miraculous events. And from that moment on, when John came preaching, he was preaching about Jesus. And he would say things like, look, I am not the light. I, I was sent to bear witness of the light. Always trust people that tell you that they're not the big deal. They're just not the big deal. Well, I can tell you definitively that John understood he was not the big deal. There were people that thought he was, but he wasn't. Didn't perform miracles. He didn't meet the qualifications of the Messiah. He was not the Messiah. So he's in the Jordan River and he's baptizing people. And the Bible says that he saw Jesus a couple of times, but in this one occasion, the Bible says, then the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, there you have it. He has this moment where he recognizes who Jesus is. Very clear to him. Obvious. The Bible would even talk about this baptism of Jesus as the only baptism we know of that was not for any kind of a purpose other than it was the will of God. And Jesus was going to fulfill a command of God so that the command itself would be fulfilled that he would live by every ordinance of God. But he is the only person that has ever been immersed and it had nothing to do with remission of sins. He was perfect. The Bible says the Holy Spirit would ascend and descend upon him in the form of a dove. John was witness to all these things and he saw all these things. But there was a moment in his life where he went to jail. And it wasn't very long after that. He was in jail for preaching. And the Bible says in Matthew 11 and 1, that it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and the things you see. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. You know what I love about this? First of all, what happened is you've got this guy that used to, he, he was seeing Jesus. He understood who he was. Pretty obvious deal. And we have that, that commitment to, to that statement right there. But then we've got this moment. He finds himself in jail, and he begins to... He begins to kind of have these moments of, this, is, this, is this really real? Is this really for real? You ever had a moment where you looked at your Christianity and said, okay, is this really for real? And if you haven't, you're probably going to at some point in time. I'm not advertising that. I'm not trying to suggest that's a great thing. But it happens to a lot of people. And what you got to make up your mind to realize is, God knew that was going to happen to a lot of people. 
This happened to his cousin, John. This happened to the guy that was the forerunner, the one that kept telling people, hey, this is the Messiah, the very one that with his own hands immersed the Christ in water. That was a big deal. And now the Lord says, go tell John. Go tell him what he needs to know. Here's what he needs to know. Look at the miracles, legitimate Bible miracles, not the kind that people fake around today. And when I say fake around, I don't mean that disrespectfully. I just mean it's, it's fake around. A Bible miracle was one where nobody had to keep taking medicine. Nobody went to a doctor. You went from dead to alive again. You had a moment where you were sick and now you were well, not kind of rehab. I'm not talking about my, my knee has an ache in it. And then it doesn't ache anymore. I'm talking about the dead folks. Get up out of the ground. Show me somebody that can do that. I need to listen to them. Jesus was that guy. The lepers were cleansed. People that were lame. People that had never walked before can walk. The deaf can hear. The dead are raised up from the grave. And the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Of all the people in the world that drew some consolation that drew some amazing comfort in what those last words mean. John, John, his cousin, drew some comfort in that because this man was about to have his head severed from his body because he stood up for the right things. He was not offended because of the truth of God's word. And so you look at that from the very get-go. When circumstances caused doubt, reach for Jesus. This story, I'm not going to read it, but whenever Jesus is on, up on the mountain and he comes out and, and he's up there praying. His disciples are in a boat. It's a, it's a terrible tempest. And whenever that tempest is in full swing, the Bible says that Jesus saw them and came and he was walking on the water. The story, of course, is amazing. They cry out for fear. They're upset about it, the Bible says. He says, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter said, let me come to you on the water if it's really you. Jesus told him to come. And as he steps foot on the water, it's an amazing moment. It's a miracle. He's able to walk on water. But then he looks around and he sees all the tempest and he sees the, the storm. And it's, it's powerful. And he takes his eyes off Jesus and he begins to sink. He has the presence of mind in that sinking moment. And maybe you've had these sinking moments in your life. He has this presence of mind to say what so many great men and women have said throughout the ages. There are a lot of times where the only voice and the only one that you're going to be able to utter on your voice is what he uttered when he said, Lord, save me. Those are some of the most amazing prayers you'll ever pray. You ever been in a bad situation with a car? You ever been in a bad situation with a lot of things? You ever been in a bad situation where you saw somebody get hurt or you're upset about something or you saw a seizure? And you start begging God to help you. When you get stressed out and when you get stuff coming your way and you get doubts coming your way and you're anxious and you got full of fear, you reach out to Jesus. You reach out to him when there's nobody else to reach out to. He stretched out his hand and he caught him and he said unto him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those who were in the boat came and worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. Well, we're here to worship Jesus. We're here to worship the Father because we're convinced He's the one. He's the one we want in our boat. He's the one we have all trust and confidence. And no matter what happens in life, you reach for Jesus. We have to keep sending out straight. In Hebrews 3, 7, the Bible says, The Holy Spirit says today, 
you will hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray their heart and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Everybody from over 20 years of age basically got a death sentence in the wilderness. And the reason they got a death sentence is because of their murmuring and complaining and constant, utter rebellion to God. They would not surrender to His leadership. They would not surrender in trust to Him and obedience to Him. And every young person here needs to think about this. You get to a certain age, you get to that age, and, and there's a lot of grace that God gives us as young people, but He expects us to grow up and get to be big people, and He expects us to have big people faith. He'll help you. He's going to work with you. He's going to have other people work with you. He's going to do everything he can to help us as young people to, to become what we need to be. But at some point in time, you've got to recognize God's kind of got this age of accountability, and it hit, it hit a bunch of Israelites, and that age was about 20 years of age. It's kind of that, that crossover point. Now, don't get too excited about being 20. Your brain doesn't stop developing until you're 25. It's called the prefrontal cortex. It's right up here. It's that part that makes you, uh, somebody need to take a, a rubber mallet to your head every now and again and just kind of hit it to make sure everything's working right whenever we make some foolish decisions. I'm joking, of course. Don't do that. But listen to what the Bible says. Beware, brethren, lest by any... Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For if we, we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. In other words, God wants you to recognize he is serious about you need to finish what you start. All of us. This passage that says, look, be, be real careful lest there is a harden, hardening of heart, an evil heart of unbelief. And he talks about that process is the deceitfulness of sin. You want to get real hard, get into sin. You want to get real mad? You want to get upset? You want to, get, you, you want to go through this whole process? This is not a new thing. But it's one of those things that we have to know. And I think if we know it, and I think if we remind ourselves, maybe it'll be a mirror at some point in time where we, when we mess up, we're quicker to fess up and get rid of it. Because one of the deceitful parts of sin is when it's allowed to stay, when you, when you know it's there and you say, you know, I, I'll put that off. I, I like it right now. And I think God's going to be okay with me and he. We're going to be all right. Don't say that. Sin is deceitful. Sin has a way of taking over. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 5, I think it's about verse 22, he said, The wicked shall be holden with the cords of his own sins. He shall die without instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. That's how sin works. We have to keep sin and doubt straight. The church has mercy on doubt. I love this part. And church, listen, this isn't a maybe kind of sort of deal. We got to have the mentality that's right. We got to get this straight in our head. In Jude 1 and 20, the Holy Spirit said, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And some 
And on some, have mercy who are in doubt. That's hard. That, that's hard for me sometimes. Especially when I was younger, I, I was so convicted about it. I thought, well, if anybody else is not, then they must be a bad person. Until you get to a point where you're stumbling over something or you're worried about something or you're worrying, wallowing something and then you're happy for people to have mercy on you. He says, have mercy on those who are in doubt. And then he said, and some save, snatching them out of the fire and some with mercy and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now unto him who is able to guard you from stumbling and to set you before the presence of his glory without blemish in exceeding joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and power before all time and now and forevermore. Sometimes you're going to have a moment where you're wondering about something. And you're thinking, okay, I, I don't know about this. I don't know how I feel about this. I'm, 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 I'm wallowing it. I'm just not sure. I know you're sure, preacher, but I'm not sure. The Bible says the church has to have mercy, and we, we've got to bear with each other in those moments. Mercy doesn't look like sarcasm. Mercy doesn't look like making fun of. Mercy doesn't look like some self-righteous judgment riding your own pony trust me i know what that feels like because i've ridden that pony and i'm real sorry about that and that's a terrible thing to ride trade that horse in don't ride that horse that's a real bad horse you want to know why that's a bad horse to ride because you're going to end up all by yourself most of the time you don't ride with two people on a horse it gets weird quick you just don't want that to happen anyway don't ride that horse then he says, some of them you snatch out of the fire. There are moments where there are, are things that happen where you get a hold of somebody and, and they don't know what they've got into. And there's somebody that comes along and basically kind of grabs them by the collar and says, shakes them a little bit. I don't know if you've ever had one of those parental experiences before. But maybe you have and maybe you haven't. And this is where wisdom and parenting spiritually has to come into play. Sometimes Jesus would bear with people a long time and he would say things like, Oh man, how long have I got to be with you on this? But then other times he would say things like, Get thee behind me, Satan. And he did both things to the Apostle Peter. He said, You got little faith here. Then another time he said, Get thee behind me, Satan. That's tough. That's tough. The Lord knew his heart. I don't know people's hearts. So what I'm going to tell you is you start as soft as you possibly can. And you make sure before you decide you're the fire snatcher, you got about a billion dollars in that person's account. Because one thing I figured out is just because you go to church with somebody, just because you may be in the same building with them on Lord's Day, just because all that doesn't mean you personally have enough investment and enough deposits in their bank account for you to write a check of some sort of action on your part that may even come a 30-second cousin to getting on to them. They're just not capable. Not capable of handling that. But sometimes, the Bible says, there are relationships and we have the ability to snatch them out of the fire. Sometimes, even though we may have mercy on doubt and even though we may have the right, do whatever this is, it just doesn't work out. 
And those are the hardest things to deal with. But I know unto him that is able to guard you from stumbling is who you need to have confidence in. That's who we all need to have confidence in. The church has mercy on doubt. The evidence is real. Let me just go back on just a second. Let me read to you something that is compelling and it's also very confrontational to all of us. I told you about riding that horse a minute ago. Let me tell you about this passage over here. It's a passage we all like for weddings. 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, is like the definition of love. But the first four verses will also rattle your cage a little bit. Here's what they say. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. The first three verses. Then he kicks off about what love is, and it goes like this. He said, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy, and love does not parade itself, and it's not puffed up. It's not provoked, and it thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I can't find a single passage in Scripture where God ever allows me to think that I have a command to do anything other than love other people. That's all I've got. That's all I've got to offer you of a command. What kind of attitude should I have? What, what, what should it be? How should it be? How does that all work? No matter what I do, no matter what purpose I do it with, the purpose and the motivation behind all of it, behind whatever circumstance somebody else is found in or even I'm found in, love is the thing that's the glue that's going to keep it all together and going to keep it all working together. Well, the evidence is real. In John 20, Thomas said, unless I see his, his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside. And Thomas said unto them, and, and Thomas was with him, with him, if I can read. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Thomas, you have seen me, you have believed. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, the Bible says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you, may have, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. He gave you evidence. You find Thomas, and I don't know if you've ever had somebody come to you before and say, okay, this is, this is how it is, and, and they finish talking and you're like, no way, I don't believe that. Thomas, this was not some sort of a joyous occasion. They're dreading the situation. Jesus has just died on the cross. He's buried. And we know he's risen again, but Thomas doesn't. His, the, the other disciples are like, look, we saw him. And he says, I won't believe it unless I put my finger there, unless I put my hand there. 
Then Jesus said, look, I'm going to give you what you need. But I'm also going to tell you that you only believed in me because you saw me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's you and me. The Lord pronounced a blessing on you for choosing to accept the evidence that he has given that he's the son of God. And that evidence is real. If you're doubting that Jesus is the son of God, if you're doubting the evidence of history and also of scripture, please give me a chance. Give Frankie a chance to study with you about that. I'm not going into all the evidence right now, but I am telling you the evidence is very, very real and it's very compelling. Not only from scripture, from Old Testament to New Testament, but it's also compelling in history. And we can show you from historians that wrote down about Jesus Christ. And maybe one of those two things will, will help you have more confidence in your faith that Jesus is the Son of God. But make no mistake about it. He said, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Listen, there's life for you to have. There's spiritual life for you to have. He has created a life for you to have. But it requires you. In fact, He demands surrender in your mind first. He demands that you surrender to the idea that He is the Son of God. He is the King of Kings. God Almighty requires everyone in this building to acknowledge His Son. And once you come to the acknowledgement that He is the Son of God, the next step is not the most difficult part, but yet it is the most difficult part. Now you pledge allegiance to Him for the rest of your life. And you pledge allegiance to nobody else more than Him. No flag, no country. The Bible says our citizenship is in heaven. I've pledged allegiance. I've been a part of pledge allegiance stuff in school my whole life. But the question is whether we pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ. The evidence is real. In 2 Peter 1, verse 10, the final passage, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Verse 15, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The evidence is real. The evidence that we follow and the reasons why we are who we are today is very real. And today we do not follow cunningly devised fables and we do not follow the will of man. If you're here today and you don't know why we do what we do, let me tell you why we offer baptism. The Bible teaches very plainly, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. I have great confidence in preaching that message because that is a message from Jesus Christ. It is not one of those that is aimed at one particular group. It is aimed at any creature. 
In Acts 8 and 12, the Bible says that as they preached the gospel, that men and women were baptized. And you can be baptized tonight, this afternoon, for the remission of your sins. Whenever you look at the evidence for the church, the Bible says in Ephesians 5.23, He is the Savior of the body. Colossians 1, about verse 18, tells us that the church is the body. Ephesians 1 also tells that. The church is how God groups together all those that have been saved and He puts us, He plants us in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, By one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Verse 18 says, God puts you in the body exactly where He wanted you. And He has expectations of you. He cares that you care about other parts of the body. And He spent an entire, the Holy Spirit spent an entire uh, chapter about responsibilities to the body. In Hebrews chapter 10, we think it's the assembly passage in verse 25, but really it's the you come together and take care of each other passage. Every time you walk through those doors, you provoke one another unto love and good works. Every time you see each other, every time you think about each other, you're not only in prayer for each other. When you see each other, it's like a family reunion. I want you to stop and think about the fact that one day, it's not going to be about biology and it's not going to be about who you're related to and whether you are at Thanksgiving dinner and holidays with your family. The only thing that's going to matter is whether you're a child of God. And you're sitting at his table every Lord's Day. That's the only thing that's going to matter. That's hard for us. Because what we want is we want, this, we want those things to overlap. We want all the people that are in our DNA line. We want all that. We sing songs about whether the circle will be unbroken. We desperately want that. That can happen and that, that, that's something that is amazing and, and awesome and all that good stuff and we hope for it and we work for it. But at the end of the day, one day it's going to be about whether I am sitting as a child of God at that table and that I've, I've honored the head of that table. And the way I honor him and the way I prove that my Christianity is real. Jesus said, in as much as you've done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Of all the good things you'll ever do in your life, the greatest thing you'll ever do is add value and bless every other Christian that you see. Because that's exactly how the Lord tested our Christianity in Matthew chapter 25. One of the greatest things that will keep people faithful and will help people is when you have a heart of love and you have a heart of compassion and you've got that encouraging heart. You cannot imagine the number of people that have pulled through some of the most difficult circumstances because of the pat on the back and the encouragement or the text or the kindness or the love. And none of that can be, you can't fabricate that. You know it when you see it. And you keep that going. You suck it up no matter whatever's going on in your life, no matter what, whatever's going on. And you be a person, as David would say in the long ago, somebody that had some of the worst circumstances happen to him, he would say, that my cup runneth over. And the only way he could say that is because he was a man after God's own heart and God poured out his blessings and other people were blessed in the overflow of what God gave him. And that's how it has to be for us. The evidence is real. If you've got doubts and you've got questions, please do me this favor. Before you choose to follow your doubts, you sit down and you examine the evidence. And you make up your mind you're going to walk by faith, not by sight. You're not going to walk by how you feel about something. You're not going to walk by the doubt that wants to capture your faith and hijack it and send you on down the stream. 
You decide you're going to anchor yourself to the cross of Jesus Christ. And you don't want to get more than an arm's length away from it because every Lord's Day you have the privilege and honor of coming and acknowledging that Jesus died for you and that's what you did this morning around this table. Every time you partake of that loaf, you're announcing to the world that that body that endured so much for you is available for that other person that came to church with you as well. It's available for the whole world. That cup of blessing that we partake of represents the new covenant ratified by the blood of Jesus. We're under a new agreement that invites anybody and everybody that will surrender to the will of God that can be saved. We are not children. We're not tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. In fact, we try to grab the hearts and hands of every young person and everybody that's new, every baby Christian, every weak Christian, everybody that's down and out, and we do our very best to hold on. Some of the greatest stories I have ever heard in my life are people that held on. I don't know if you've ever known it or not, but your body has a wear-out capacity. You can't hold a gallon of milk out to your side for more than five minutes. I had professors and challenge us to it, and some big, you know, meathead would show up and say, oh, I can do it. And before long, they'd start sweating and trembling, and it would drop after a period of time. I forgot what it is now. But the ones that are amazing are the ones where they never let go and they never gave up. Ones where they held on to the edge of rocks and they literally held hands and clasped hands and held on until every part of their shoulder had given out. Stripped every part of it but their hands never let go. For, for time that blows your mind and those illustrations are all over the place. We're never going to let go. We're never going to let go. That's who we are. If you're here today and you've got challenges in your life, you've got sin in your life and you need our prayers, we'd love to pray for you. Maybe you're here and you've never been baptized for the remission of your sins. Maybe you've let doubt and the questions you have take you away from focusing on what you know to be true from the Word of God. I beg of you today, consider the evidence. Is Jesus the Son of God? Is He worthy of your full commitment? Is He worthy of you giving him the number one place in all of your life? Sure he is. He died for you. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man that would lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for you. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.